0: And Welcome to The Church's Radical Reform, the series about the unprecedented battle to renew the Catholic Church, which Pope Francis has begun. In episode 7, I'm going to take you inside what a synod process looks like. The setting is Sydney, during a dramatic week where the Australian Catholic Church sought to agree a blueprint for its future. I was there to report on the event. Now, if you think synodality is about having nice discussions and drinking cups of tea, think again. The Assembly in Sydney saw different groups battling it out over the Church's future. I witnessed a roller coaster ride of passionate disagreements, tears, and an almost miraculous pulling together in agreement at the end. Synodality is certainly messy. But, as we shall see, the disagreement can be healthy and even creative. Alyssa Roper is an expert on the church's synodal reform, and she played a crucial role in the Australian process, which was known as a plenary council. She's a theologian and was one of the experts involved in drafting the final document. A key issue at the council assembly was the question of the role of women.
1: The process of the week has exceeded my expectations. Well, this is this is something really new for us in Australia. It's been uh, over 80 years, of course, since the last primary council, and someone's pointed out this is the first council to have women in it. So um, it's a bit—I I can understand cynicism, but this is this is a remarkable event, and it's actually turned out to be a, quite a. Um, a hope-filled and, and I feel a, a collaborative event as well.
0: And it's produced some quite significant voting outcomes for, for the way forward for the
1: church. Yes, it has. And, and if you actually look at what was voted upon in the last two, three days and the ease in which it passed, demonstrates the intense work that was put into making sure that people agreed and owned the content of those paragraphs.
0: And can you say a little bit about the process of how important it is to trust that without being too trite, that the, that the spirit is there?
1: I, I think the triteness of when we say we trust in the spirit comes about because we don't ground it in, um, well, in a, in a wider confidence. But also to collaborate, to, to, to work with the spirit in all this preparation that gone on, all the prayer, the prayerful support has been really palpable um, over this week, and all of the um, commitment of people. So when there's commitment to listening to the spirit, and the, the, the activities of the week have really built that as a strength of these people.
0: Thank you very much. Now halfway through the meeting in Sydney, was a vote on a motion titled The Equal Dignity Of women and men in the church. It called for women to be involved in governance roles and for the council to support female deacons. But the motion failed to gain enough support when it was voted on initially. This led to dozens of those involved in the assembly process, including some bishops, refusing to take their seats for the next session. It was a hugely dramatic moment. It also turned out to be a turning point. I spoke to Maddie Ford, a 26-year-old member of the Plenary Council, who works as a minister to young Catholics at the Australian Catholic University. I talked to her about her experience and that moment of drama.
2: My name is Maddie Ford. I am a young person. Um, I'm a woman. I... Work at a university with young people. For the past eight years, I've been working every single day and encountering young people. I'm a disability support worker. I run several youth advisory groups. Um, and more recently, I'm the Oceania representative for the International Youth Advisory Body for the Dicastry of Laney Family and Life. Oh, okay. And so. I was representing Adelaide and then um, as their spirit moves and, and things happen, um, my plans flipped upside down and um, I moved to Sydney um, and so since October in 2020, I've been based in mm. Sydney. Um, so I still represent Adelaide as a member, but I think um, on a wider and more broader sense, I'm here for the young people um that i encounter each and every day whether they're inside the church or outside the church
0: and has the plenary council has that changed your perception of the church
2: i think that's a really interesting question because there's such a significance of the journey that's happened here it's happened Mm -hmm. over four years I think when I found out I was a member I was 23 and I'm now 26 so I've absolutely learned to learn and I think I've grown in appreciation and gratitude um, for a lot that I've listened to and, and heard and, and seen uh, with the people I've encountered and their experiences and their encounters
0: a lot of people, say, well, young people are, are not interested in the church, not connected to the church. Uh, what does the church need to do to start reconnecting with the younger
2: generation? I don't think that's a definitive answer because it's different for every single young person because their story and their journey is also extremely different and individual as well and i think that commonality is our faith and our spirituality and our belief as well i think it's important uh, to acknowledge that i am obviously a significantly um, privileged white mm-hmm. person so my experience are um, marginally different to someone else's experiences. So when I speak, I speak on my personal encounters of, of young people um, that I've been on journeys with. So I speak from a space of witnessing frustration, uh, joy, um, an abundance of unconditional love as well. And for me, I think what I'm noticing in particular is young people aren't necessarily leaving the church. They still have that unconditional love, that faith, that spirituality, and that belief. And they're seeking those experiences as well. I think it's, and I think most significantly, is what I am seeing and hearing in my sitting with young people is that their encounters with people within the church is what they're questioning. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily their faith, um, belief or religion. It's these encounters that they've had in which they've been made to feel unwelcome Mm
3: -hmm.
2: in which perhaps they were invited into a space to have a place at a table and then they were told that don't speak too loudly Mm. or you don't have enough knowledge to comment on that Mm. Um, or you have to justify why you're here Mm. and I think they're the experiences which are really challenging and troubling young people that I've encountered.
0: To some young people, they look at the church and they think well, it's, it's a little bit distant, it seems quite male-dominated. Is that also an issue, the, lack of, the perceived lack of equality? Or is it more about the inclusion?
2: I think it's more the inclusion and the welcome. Okay.
4: Right.
2: Also talking about their small actions for that. Right. And how I spoke about sometimes being invited to the table and then being told, that, you know, don't speak up to yeah, them. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So all those encounters um, impact that. I think, yeah, it's it's a huge issue. hmm and I wouldn't even say issue. I'd say this is a complex and multi layered and intersectional environment. I think the most important thing for young people and the women as well is the recognition that they are worthy. They are valued, they are heard, they are seen, they are unconditionally loved.
0: This motion on the role of women, which was defeated um, and now is being put forward again, were you upset when that motion was voted down?
2: Hysterically, completely crushed and so upset Because in the moment, what was swirling through my heart were all the young people, particularly the women, that had just given their whole heart to this community of unconditional love and in that moment to hear that that was something that was not being recognised was really crushing Mm. and to be honest I was really distraught Mm. that for me I was thinking about the young people and I would then have to face with the reality of their future, our future for the next 60 years and what I would say Mm, mm. about it. It was a mixture of emotions, but I was really upset. Mm.
0: And do you feel hopeful now?
2: I think I'm trusting. Mm. I'm trusting in people and the spirit. But I feel after the very visible pain and anguish and distress of not only the women in the room, but the men in the room. what had happened and what had come to fruition, I think then the process of having to sit and visibly see that pain and that anguish brought us to a place where we could really authentically understand and empathise with each other as we stood Mm. in that rawness and in that vulnerability
0: as well. So it did have, weirdly, a, a positive effect. I hope so. Right. You're still trusting in this synodal journey, um, the synodal reform of the church that Pope Francis calls for. Is You still trust that? And what do you make of what Pope Francis is trying to do to bring about a synodal church? Mm-hmm. Is that going in the
3: right direction?
2: As a young person that's looking at my reality for the next hopefully 60 or more years, I don't want to limit that, I truly believe so because from what I'm witnessing in the visibility of the importance of every single person with a journey, a story, an experience being heard and truly heard, not, um, you know, I'm listening with two ears, but um, mm. I think heard and the synodal process of, of being heard and that two-way dialogue and that understanding of reciprocal wisdom and knowledge and encounters and experiences comes into my understanding of the synodal journey. So from what I'm witnessing, I believe so, and I truly hope
0: so. Later, I spoke to Virginia Bork, a lawyer and a senior laywoman who is the chair of Mercy Health Australia, a large healthcare provider founded by the Sisters of Mercy. She talked about the disagreements inside the Assembly Hall and how they were handled. Does synodality actually work?
4: Well, I think I think it does work. And I was really curious at the start of the week. In fact, in the first assembly, I was very curious how this was going to work. I think the real test of it was this, this week when we're all in the room together. I don't think a virtual assembly can be a real test of synodality. So yeah, I was very curious and I think it did work. I mean, it was uncomfortable and very difficult at times and really challenging, but uh, after the, the issues we had on Wednesday when there was such a strong reaction to um, the failure of the deliberative vote to pass the motion on part four, which was equality with women, equality between women and men, um, I think the fact that at the end of the week uh, we were all still in the room Um, We'd managed to pass some reasonably significant motions as a group. So I think it it does work. I I think it also surfaced some really big issues, some areas that really um, needed to be dealt with openly.
0: And one of those is the role of women in the church and the need to find greater visibility, recognition. Someone such as yourself is working in a high-level position in, in, in the church, but it can seem like the church officially is not doing enough to recognise uh, the roles of women.
4: Yes, I think that's right. I think uh, for me it was fairly modest set of recommendations, but it was, and you could see in the room, there were some who found it really difficult and it was highly contested. Uh, to a degree, I actually spoke on this uh, made an intervention so I can speak to my own intervention, which was um, really to talk about the disconnect that I've experienced as a woman who can hold many different roles or not hold those roles in in community and civil life. But then in church life, in, in terms of diocesan and pastoral life, I do not have the same opportunities afforded to me and I think that that disconnect, uh, for me, that that is where so many women, including you know my friends, my colleagues, uh, my family, they are the women who silently, women and men who've silently drifted away from the church, um, uh, pointing to that huge disconnect. Um, one other aspect uh, also that um, I'd spoken to was the fact that for women to participate in leadership and governance doesn't in any way diminish the contribution of other women in any roles in the church. And uh, women in leadership and governance in the church are also women who've been in parish and uh, diocesan life doing many different aspects. So I don't see that as a diminishment. Um, For me, I feel only solidarity and respect for other women. Um, I I also think um, it was important the assembly to hear how deeply painful it is for some women who feel that they have uh, so many gifts to offer they might feel called to leadership or to preaching uh, to teaching or even to vocations um, and there's real suffering and sorrow when those gifts are not realized in the service of the church so those were some of the issues that mm. were spoken about and of course there were you know many voices that were uh, had different views. Yeah.
0: And obviously, um, emotions ran high. There was this silent, semi protest. Um, was the process able to resolve that or to, to respond to that? Because I mean, people might have walked out at that stage.
4: Yes, I, I think that's right. I think the process was able to adapt. And I think, when, to go back to the question about does synodality work? Well, in that case, when there was this, I think, a pivotal moment in the. And I think the response of uh, Bishop Shane McKinley and the—I um, was trying to remember who was on the stage at that time—but the response of allowing extra time to deal with this issue and ultimately to pass a motion to reconsider the issue that was absolutely critical to the synodal process. It meant, I think, that the group were being listened to and that's the significant thing. The reformulation of the agenda or the adaption of the program was absolutely critical, and I think that meant we could find our way through, uh, and it also meant that people stayed in the room.
0: What would you say to women who don't want to engage with these synodal processes because they think that the disconnect is too great between the institutional church and the role of women?
4: Well, I understand that and I I respect that because (laughs) it's very difficult to sometimes be in the church and and Wednesday was a very difficult day. But I think there's something um, for people um, who have, you know, people have a real commitment and deep loyalty and love for the church and I think that's what held it together. Um, And there's also an element of um, it is important that women's voices are heard. So, going back into the room was important that the voices didn't just go missing. So I deeply respect women who don't feel they can engage anymore. I really understand that. But for those who do remain, to still have a voice and the fact that women were here at the Plenary councils is immensely significant. The
0: first time, I think, a
4: Plenary Council has had. Yeah, and and I remind myself about that when I feel perhaps that the motions weren't sufficiently, you know, to, you know, we're too modest. I think. Well, at least we are here. We do have a voice, and I'm glad that we stayed and continued to have a voice.
0: Were you concerned that there might have been a kind of organised block to certain motions and amendments? Was there a kind of? Did you get a sense of a group trying to to stop things? Or was it just part and parcel of the, the the debates and the disagreements?
4: Yeah, no, I didn't have a sense of a a, a block. I, I, I really didn't. There were some strong voices in the room, uh, but the, the 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 new process or the you know amended process that was developed on Wednesday, which meant that in, that people could speak to the motions directly from the floor. That really, uh, I think, that sort of drew out. Um, I think it gave more integrity to the process. You could hear directly from those who had issues and people also wanted wanted to Mm. air their views. I think that, that seemed to work well. The flow improved on Wednesday. How convinced are you that the
0: synodal model of the Church of Pope Francis is the way to go in the future? Because some people in the universal church, they say, oh, no, it's going to cause divisions and disagreements and problems but do you think the Synodal Church model of Francis is the way forward, having experienced it for the last few days?
4: I think it's been significant here. I think we have been able to make some significant changes in the church here. I think it is so important that people with different views will actually encounter each other. Mm. And I saw women with polarised views on issues engaging with each other and that takes a great deal of courage and I admire it and I think if that's synodality then that is what we need.
0: Despite the disagreements and the tensions the plenary council held together. A motion on the role of women was redrafted and agreed and that motion included that the church in Australia would welcome female deacons should Pope Francis approve the change. This is highly significant. Ten other decrees were agreed, including apologies to abuse victims, support and recognition for indigenous peoples, agreement for all Catholic institutions to take steps to protect the environment, inclusion of LGBT Catholics, and a greater role for lay people in the governance of the church. It marks a remarkable step forward. Archbishop Mark Coleridge, the architect of the Plenary Council, sat down with me to discuss what had been a momentous week. Uh, this has been a process that's uh, been going on formally, at least, for four
3: years. Well, the roots of it go back like 20 years, in fact, because yeah. it was Archbishop Philip Wilson, the late Archbishop Philip Wilson of Adelaide, who first sowed the seed in about, I think it was about 2002, when I, I was very new in the episcopate. He suggested that at the moment was right or uh, a national ecclesial event, I think was the phrase he used. And at the time, there was certainly not agreement among the bishops that this was the right thing at the right time. But the idea kind of lingered, and the discussion continued. And I, uh, I was a good friend of Philip Wilson's, and we often talked about it. And the more I listened to his reasoning, the more persuaded I was that he was right. But again, there, there, there was very significant disagreement in the uh, the Bishop's Conference. But uh, so as a result, we decided to have in 2012, I think it was, The um, so 10 years later, we decided to have what we called a year of grace, which was a year of discernment at the end of which we hoped to be in a better position to make a decision about some kind of national ecclesial event to, to chart a course into the future. Uh, That was an extraordinary moment too, the Year of Grace, contemplating the face of Christ was the phrase we used. But then two things happened um, in 2013 that were mighty catalysts in this process. One was the um, election of Pope Francis as Pope, which I at least and plenty of others didn't see coming, and all that he brought, particularly on the theme of synodality. And the second thing was the Royal Commission into um, Institutional Responses to Sexual Abuse. Um, The the, the Plenary Council was not a response to to the crisis of sexual abuse that came to a head in the Royal Commission, one, and secondly, that abuse and the cover-up were systemic or cultural and raised deep questions about the system and the culture of the Catholic Church. So you had this convergence of those two mighty catalysts that really pushed us much further along this path. Then I was somewhat surprisingly elected one of the Australian bishops at the 2015 Synod in Rome, the second of the two synods on marriage and the family. And it was really that experience uh, that was uh, very critical because... My experience of the, it was the first real experience of synodality at work that I'd had. And again, halfway through that synod, the three weeks of the synod, it was all over the place. It was going nowhere. And I just couldn't mm. see how we could possibly achieve anything worth achieving at the end of the three weeks. By hell, we did. Mm. And one of the reasons for that was this extraordinary talk that the Pope gave on um, October the 17th, on uh, the celebration of the 50 years of the synods. Mm. He gave that programmatic talk on synodality. And it was really halfway through that talk that it, I had one a, a, kind of a light bulb moment, it felt like, uh, uh, where suddenly I thought, now is finally the time for us to move towards, let's say, a plenary council. It felt like, as I say, like a moment of inspiration or something. So I came back and spoke to the bishops out of that experience. Uh, in the November meeting it was, shortly after I'd returned from the Synod, and they set up a committee to make recommendations to the next meeting of the bishops in May the following year, 2016. So I chaired a very good committee that uh, recommended to the bishops' conference in May 2016 that we move to a plenary council and the bishops agreed by a very large majority. Actually, when I look back across these years that I'm... Describing, it's fascinating the way different people have emerged to assume leadership in the process. It's, mm. There's a providential pattern to it. I mean, Philip Wilson was, in some ways, the prime mover. Then, so it's been. It's been a variety of personalities and mm. uh, who have emerged to assume leadership, and. Uh, it's just strengthened my sense that no one of us is really leading this process, but the Holy Spirit is. Mm. And I have been convinced ever since October the 17th, uh, 2015, that, that this con- this uh, Plenary Council is the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm. I, I wouldn't spend five minutes on it if I didn't think it was the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not speaking as some kind of uh, dimwitted fundamentalist. I, I've seen so much evidence... To suggest that it is the work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's running the show. It
0: has been a bit of a roller coaster. And, totally. at, one, and at one point, it, it, there was a threat of potentially some people leaving the. Leaving well, the anything
3: day. was. Halfway through Wednesday, and this is now well known, anything was possible. Uh, you know, the atmosphere in the uh, the hall was. Electric, to put it mildly, and this is following the the vote, the vote on, yeah. which, didn't, which didn't get through. Well, and see what one of the most distressing things for many people, and I do mean many, was that it, it it meant if we just let it sit as it was, that this assembly would say nothing about all those issues that go under the heading of women, and it, it's it's a cluster of issues. It's not a single issue, and that was simply. Outrageous. So there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of distress, a lot of confusion. And uh, then you know, you people gathered down the back of the hall. Now it took I was sitting up the front with my back to it, in fact, and I could hear something going on, but I it took me a while to to focus on what was actually happening. And when eventually I I looked around and I saw all of these, there was a big group of people and it was a a real cross-section of the assembly. It wasn't a a particular sector or an interest group of some kind or just women. It was right across the board, men, women, bishops, uh, priests, religious, you know, everyone was down the back. Not everyone, but a big crowd. Now, mercifully... The very, very good chair, a woman, uh, when the moment came, she gently said uh, she invited people, everyone, to resume their seats for the spiritual conversation. And that was my moment of real apprehension if the people who were standing down the back, if they had refused to return to the table, Mm. that would have been real crisis. But in fact it didn't happen. It uh, people came quietly, respectfully back to their places, and we entered into a time of spiritual conversation, which was providential. Um, So I uh, I then had uh, an emergency uh, chat with Bishop Shane McKinlay, and we convened a meeting, a lunchtime meeting of the bishops. But then the suggestion was made, I think, by Shane McKinlay that we have the steering committee there as well. And they're they're a critical group because they were monitoring the whole thing. I was on that and Shane was on that and Tim was on that. So we had the uh, uh, meeting at lunchtime of all the the deliberative voters, the bishops and the others, and the steering committee. And that was an excellent meeting where uh, the truth was spoken and I think uh, it was really that meeting... That uh, charted a course that allowed us to navigate through some pretty turbulent waters that, that afternoon to a much better space um, on Wednesday evening. And when the vote happened as it did, we were effectively saying, without realising, that we were that we wanted to say nothing. We couldn't say, "I don't agree with this part of the chapter." So that was another mm. clearly flawed sure. process. So we saw how serious the situation was. We couldn't just ignore the level of distress and confusion. We saw how flawed the process was and how we, we had to modify not only our process but also the modus procedendi, the way we were working on the floor of the meeting, and we did. Uh And I have to say, in retrospect, I think the way we navigated through that Wednesday and on into the Thursday morning was quite remarkable. And what it it meant was that that moment of crisis became um, a real grace and a blessing. Mm -hmm. It was the turning point of the Assembly. And all our very, very carefully considered plans just had to be thrown up in the air, and we had to improvise. And I think that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And w- the end of that Wednesday, I remember going back to my room at the hotel and sitting down and thinking, "My God, uh, it had to. It, this there's an inevitability about this. It was always going to come to something like this, sometime, somehow." Mm. Um, but it was the making of the assembly, because the the difference in the mood and the the kind of the temper of the of the assembly on Thursday and Friday was unmistakable. So, um, so this whole synodal journey that the church is on, it's going to be messy. That, that's what it's like. This this was a classic experience of synodality. But it's like that synod on Marys and the family. Halfway through, it was going nowhere. And we all felt it. It, it, So the synodal journey takes you into a kind of chaos. It has to do that. And that's very disconcerting, particularly, you know, the the quantity and quality of planning for this assembly was just extraordinary. And you think you've got it all nailed down. And you haven't. So... uh, uh, But had we the strong arm tactic, ignored the distress, stuck to our plans and and strategies and Mm. modus project ending, that would have led to a complete unravelling of the Assembly. Mm. So in a sense, you you had to
0: respond to what was being said. Yeah. And that wasn't
3: itself. First of all, we had to understand what was being said, and that wasn't necessarily easy. We had to interpret what was going on. Right. That was the first thing. Then we had to uh, uh, accept flaws in our process and our modus procedendi and then have the agility to, to, to improvise.
0: So it, the took, change. it took some humility, given all the planning that has happened.
3: Absolutely. And a willingness to listen. Again, you know, synodal equals listening. So that that I think what, what emerged was that People came, members came to see that, that they were being heard. And, and so, so there was a new quality of listening to each other that emerged and could only have emerged because of this moment of crisis. So, so it, it really is a, a, a kind it of, led into a chaos that, that relativizes your own plans and summons you to a new depth of listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now until you until you've actually experienced this it's very hard to understand
0: but there are some people in the church who are that they're, they're, they're scared of that they're Absolutely. fearful of that and chaos look,
3: there is there is a bit of scariness in it too I, I i quite understand that what we try all of us are trying to do is build the future now you know the, the, there is no way back it's where the, mm. the myth of restoration is, is, is a mirage. And uh, so I understand we're all a bit fearful when it comes to chaos and uncertainty. I mean Catholics like uh, <laughs> things to be clear and, and, and certain. It's one of the things we kind of pride ourselves on. You know, other churches were unclear and uncertain, if not us. Um, But I I just, I think it's what the Spirit is saying to us at this time. And uh, in the background, there is also the cry, do not be afraid. Uh, And you'll only really succumb to fear and anxiety if you don't believe the Spirit is leading you. Mm. And I think those who are most fearful of this kind of process... I think really um, struggle to believe that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I I, I just think there's no other way into the future. So, yeah. and that's why I say it's an Abrahamic moment. It, we can't know. Fear will not take us into the future that God has in mind.
0: Uh, on the other side of things, there are those who say, "Well, there's no point in doing these these
3: councils or sinners because they're, they're not going to lead to anything." You know. Well, that's been well, that cry has been incessant here and. I think this week says that it's just not true. Uh, so so cynicism's not a thing of the future either, no. just as fear isn't. but uh, and I can understand again people being a bit being skeptical, not cynical, but but I can understand a certain skepticism, but um, but I think this week shows that you can. In a, an assembly of this kind and following the synodal path, you can get stuff done. And yeah. we have made very significant decisions. Now, of course, the real work lies ahead. It, it only looks a beginning. So it'll be up to us, all of us, through this phase of implementation to show that synodality isn't just about um, a talk fest. Uh, but is about decisions that lead to action. Yeah. What do you say to the the criticism that's sometimes made
0: that um, synodality shouldn't be uh, simply about looking at the internal issues of the church? It should be
3: about the outward looking. At- well, I, I think that's a thoroughly valid point, and... Oh, this has always been a question that we've been alert to through this process. Are we being introverted in a way that the Pope has warned against? And asking that we've been asking the question through this week: How will this help us to be not only a more Christ-centred church, but a more missionary church? Now, I have to say, quite a lot of our decisions concern the internal life of the church. Mm. I would like to think that that they only concern the internal life of the church in order to generate the kind of energy that sure. mission requires. But, look, the other thing is I can now see that the Plenary Council, a great gift and a very important moment, but it's not the last word. Mm. And, and in the implementation phase, and particularly the implementation of the local level, we're going to have to keep these questions about new ways of mission or, or reordering the internal life of the church in order to generate new energies and new new paths for mission. It had to be. I mean, because obviously once we had decided to redraft that, that that was the other thing we came to see, that that draft upon which we voted the first time was a seriously flawed draft. Uh um, that we didn't realise is how flawed until mm. the moment of crisis. The the second draft was was a, a much better document, and there was a certain watering down, but we were trying to keep the substance of the uh, mm. of the motions, and um, so so yeah, it was it was. Uh, the drafting was, was one of those things that we came to see as more of a problem at certain points, and, mm. and the classic case of Part 4, the women's issues, uh, showed that, I think, that we just needed to revisit the mm. drafting. But then we couldn't... Once we would decided to do that and have another consultative and then deliberative vote, we couldn't possibly allow it to fail a second time. Sure. That would have been catastrophe.
0: A contested part of the motion on women was the question of female deacons, something that's also a hotly debated issue across the church right now. Those in favour point to the fact that there were women deacons in the early church, but those against are concerned it could lead to the ordination of women priests, something that popes have ruled against. Nevertheless, the synod process is throwing up the question. So what does Archbishop Coleridge think?
3: I personally have no problem with it, and even less of a problem after Benedict XVI made those adjustments to the canons on on deacons where the diaconate is not tied so strictly to priesthood and episcopate. Uh, So personally, and I have thought about this a fair bit, I have no problem with it, but I'm only one of 45 bishops.
0: Mm.
3: I I think we've got to be asking how can we involve uh, women who aren't ordained. They may be deacons, but most of them won't be. How can we involve them in the governance of the church? And in a sense, the question is not just about women in governance. It's a, The question is about lay people, the baptised in governance. Yeah. In other words, is governance tied to baptism or is it tied to ordination? Or right. is it both? Right. And if you look at predicate Evangelium, uh, the, the real significance, it seems to me, of that document is it ties – or uh, governance authority to govern to baptism the other thing is it's it's not uh, it's not sneakily uh, moving to undermine or abolish the, the ordained ministry no it's not one or the other it's both, both yeah. but uh, some see it as one or the other and this came up at this assembly that you're effectively sidelining and even moving to abolish the the God-given, uh, sacrament of orders.
0: A number of sources inside the Assembly Hall told me that a small group were trying to block reforms and were using different tactics, including in the Catholic media, to make their feelings known. It meant there was a real struggle to find a consensus. Now, although the Synod is a spiritual process of discernment, there was also a strong political battle going on. Were you concerned that inside the um, council that there was a a
3: a group that were blocking things oh look there 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 were and there had to be different perspectives i mean it's it's no secret that there, there there would be a group that would see some of the agenda of the plenary council as somehow subversive and i think they made that fairly clear and uh, they were they were quite, and it was clear on the floor of the of the assembly that there were some who were quite determined to do all they could to persuade others to, you know, vote nay. And uh, the uh, they're just different views of the church and of the church's mission. Therefore. Um, so, so, yes, I mean, I, w- I wasn't disturbed or surprised. It's just there. Mm. And it's there. It's not just some of the bishops. It, it would be there among the bishops, among the clergy, among the religious and among the lay people. Yeah. Mm. So. Uh, some of them religious. Some of them religious, yeah, but not all. Some were lay. The, 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 there is a, there's a, a restorationist. Herman, um, oh, "Herman" is a ridiculous word to use in an interview, but you know what I mean. There is a restorationist impulse at work in in some that, again, I kind of I understand what they're they're on about, but but they uh, they seem to me to struggle to um, to deal with the facts on the ground. Mm. Um, and the Restorationist agenda can be tied to, um, uh, you know, sort of certain cultural wars. Yes. Cultural wars model and, uh, you know, ideological warfare of one kind or another. And, again, I just don't think that's where we are as the church in this country. <clears throat> um, you know, we're not, we're not sort of riding into battle Uh, against uh, a a culture that is uh, to be condemned out of hand. I mean, again, there can be a mentality that doesn't uh, value uh, the culture, in other words, tends to condemn the culture and sees it all as going to um, hell in a handbasket, as they say. Uh, Whereas it seems to me perhaps that the church is at a point where we've got to be, you know, a humbler church that that does listen and enter into dialogue with, with the culture and um, can appreciate the uh, the signs of God yeah. in a culture. And yes. In other words, it's not enough just to say how dreadfully secularised the culture is or mm.
0: Mm.
3: how, um, you know, they've lost a moral compass and... Mm. Uh, And I do get concerned where there's this sense of us against the world. Uh, That's not Mm. a a particularly Catholic instinct. What lessons do you think um, this process
0: can teach the global church, given the Synod on Synodality Mm. and the big summit in 2023? That's that's
3: likely to be quite dramatic and potentially... (laughs) I do think and have long thought that what we are doing here in Australia does have significance for the universal church, and and, and could be some kind of gift that we very humbly offer uh, from our little corner of the world. But but I'd, I'd be very wary of sort of uh, being too grandiloquent on that okay. uh, on that front. Um, I think our experience would say, look. Don't be afraid mm. of a synodal process. I mean trust the Holy Spirit uh, don't, don't be afraid to listen don't be too quick to speak uh, and in um, you know, a sense of God will provide mm. But but uh, I had, when you talk about the universal church, you know, it can be—it's a very grand sort of thing. That uh, uh, you know, the, the cultural modulations from place to place are vastly different. Yeah. And maybe across the English-speaking. Yeah, that—that's—that's that's the world that I I would know best. And I mean, I, I for instance, I think and this is perhaps impertinent of me even to think it, let alone say it. that that the US church, which is a very badly polarised church, it seems to me, as indeed the whole nation is, politically Mm -hmm. and culturally, that that I, I think it would be a providential thing for the church in the USA to embark upon some kind of synodal process. Now... I know I'm, I'm certainly not in a position to be telling the US bishops what to do, for God's sake, but, uh, but in that sort of situation, it would, uh, it would be a, a, at times a painful process and a difficult process to manage, particularly given the, the size and uh, complexity of the church in the USA. But I, I just think that it may be the kind of circuit breaker that um, that could create uh, something beyond the kind of polarization that I think is is very troubling in a place mm-hmm. like the US. We've already been in dialogue with the Irish and just telling our story, really. I, I'm not sure that we can do much more than that. Yeah, yeah. we can't prescribe anything. No, but, but what what we have done with the Irish, is um, and also with uh, with the Scots, I, I did a session with them, but um, but just to tell our story, and and if that helps them shape their own story, then so much the better, yes. Yeah, uh, it's been a kind of laboratory, though. That... It has, it has been, there's no question, and and it, it, it's it's been a whole massive process of improvisation Mm. from the very start until the end of it. It
0: does kind of work. It's like reading the, reading the recipe and the ingredient, not sure. And then actually it does mm. sort of,
3: it does work. And (laughs) in the end, when I say, uh, tell our story, that's what I, that's about all we can say. Look, it it works, but work doesn't mean to say, to say that it works doesn't mean to say it's magic. No, it's not magic. It's, bloody hard work, <laughs> and it takes time um, and it takes a lot of faith and a lot of goodwill. But if all of that's there, it, it opens up new possibilities. Yeah. And that's what we were very much in need of here. Yes. And that's, they are the doors are now open. Now, we've got to walk through those doors and do all the hard work that, that building the future entails. But, but in that process too, we're not abandoned by the Holy Spirit. On the contrary, the Spirit will be with us no less in the next phase of the journey, implementation, as the Spirit has been with us in the preparation phase and the celebration phase. Yeah. So... Um, and to what extent is this a new era for the church in Australia? Uh again I, I I'm, I'm wary of being too apocalyptic, you know, turn of the ages and all that sort of thing. Uh, I but I, I think uh if it's not a new era, we have crossed a threshold of some kind. And uh doors are open now that were not open, and there are possibilities before us now that we're not there, we've got to, in, in a real sense, create the future.
0: Mm.
3: Now, the restorationist mind tends to see, and there's, so the restorationist mind is always part of Catholic sensibility, but it tends to see the, the faithfulness to the past as what is most crucial rather than um, a willingness to to build a future. Um, now, I think we do have to build a future, that there are, there are all kinds of structures and strategies that worked well once upon a time, and I think we just have to say that. The Pope has touched on this in various writings. So trying to, you know, sort of boats beating back endlessly into the past, I think it's Scott Fitzgerald's phrase at the end of Great Gatsby, Trying to beat back endlessly into the past um, is, I think, a, a doomed enterprise. So we have to, we have to make. Certainly, as part of this plenary process, we've had to decide what do we let go. Mm. And that's always hard, and I think it's particularly hard for Catholics. But we do have to let go of some things, things that we might have cherished. And if they work, so much the better. If they don't, to admit that in time and try something else. But are you feeling hopeful and at peace? Oh, I am. I, I, I've never been anything other than at peace with this whole process, and I, uh, I sometimes thought that's a bit odd. But no, I, I at the end of this week, I feel um, I feel hopeful, I feel at peace, and I feel uh, in a huge sense of gratitude to the one who's led us to this into this space it's not the end of the journey but, but we've come a long way and uh i mean i'm moving into my the last years of my life and i i kind of wish i was 10 years younger <laughs> <laughs> because i think we are heading into um uh, a fascinating period where the church will look very different but uh But I I don't think we're going out of business for a moment.
0: (laughs) The Australians have pointed the way for other churches to follow. And I would say that they have taught the rest of the church two important lessons. The first is that internal tensions don't need to be feared. In fact, it is the moment of crisis brought about by open disagreement that can provide the breakthrough. Second... It shows that when done properly, the Synod process itself can bring about a remarkable shift in the Church's culture. Looking around that Synod Hall in Australia, I was struck to see bishops and laypeople sitting together, talking, praying and voting. Even though they disagreed, they kept on talking. To me, this pointed to a new model of the Church. The question now is how other churches will follow. In my next episode I'm going to do what I promised last time and speak to some who are still sceptical of the Synod and others who have found against the odds that it is providing reasons for hope. This is a podcast supported by the Centre for Catholic Studies in Durham in partnership with The Tablet. Thank you for listening.